Listen up, everybody. On Tuesday, March 19th, 4.15 Eastern Time, that's 1.15 here local in LA, I'll be hosting a webinar to discuss Cambria's two new ETFs, the Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker TYLD, and the Cambria Micro and Small Cap Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker MYLD. Head over to Cambria's Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find the registration link. Once again, that's March 19th at 4.15 Eastern Time. Look forward to seeing you. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambryfunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of capital. The Cambry ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., member FINRA, FINRA. Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, my friends. We got a really fun episode today. Our guest is Dr. Burton Malkiel, legendary economist, chief investing officer of Wealthfront, and author of one of my favorite books and one of the most widely read investing books ever, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, which recently celebrated a 50-year anniversary. Today's episode, Dr. Malkiel shares what's changed in the latest update of the book, touching on the role of bonds given higher yields today, the impact of inflation, and why it may be time to consider adding I-bonds to your portfolio. Then we talk about some current investing trends. He pushes back on the ESG craze, discusses the recent underperformance of risk parity, and suggests you look at your portfolio to be sure you aren't overallocated to U.S. stocks today. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. It's always exciting when YChart releases a new enhancement to the platform, and just recently they launched the new attribution analysis tool. It can help you see what's driving a portfolio's performance, displayed with quick hitting and easy to understand heat map and bar chart views. You can use this for funds, ETFs, and model portfolios and see a quick screenshot of the top eight contributors and detractors over any time period or look at the full attribution table. I've used it to check out some of the strategies and love how easy it is to use. For current YChart users, you're likely already familiar with the power of their report builder and proposal generation offerings. Now you can integrate attribution tables and visuals into your proposals to help tailor the investment story that resonates with your clients. Check out this new feature for yourself and get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial by going to ycharts.com slash meb dash Faber, or just click the link in the show notes for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with the legendary Bert Malkiel. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Where do we find you today? Well, I'm in Princeton, New Jersey as you can sort of see from the screen behind me. You know, I'm really excited. been looking forward to talking to you. Your book, which just hit 50-year anniversary. My goodness, that's amazing this year. What edition are we on, by the way? Well, we're on the 13th edition, and uh, I would say there are uh, probably more changes in this edition than in uh, any of the editions in the past. Let's talk about it. What's what's the big differences? 
Well, the uh, let me start with uh, w- what the message of the original edition was and what hasn't changed. And that is that in the original edition that was first published in 1973, it recommended that people would be better off having as the core of their portfolio a very simple, low-cost, broad-based index fund. And in fact, the thing that was said about the earlier edition is, yeah, that sounds fine, except you can't buy the index. And I indicated in that edition you couldn't buy the index, and I thought it was about time that you could. Well, three years later, the Vanguard Group started the first actual index fund, and now you can buy the index. The first index fund was not a great success. Market professionals thought this was uh, absolutely silly. There's no way that a professionally managed portfolio couldn't beat a simple index fund. But the evidence, and here we go to one of the new things that's uh, in the book, the evidence has just been accumulating and is very strong that, in fact, indexing is not a mediocre strategy. It's, in fact, an optimal strategy. The Standard & Poor's Corporation does what they call a SPIVA study. And that stands for the Standard & Poor's Indexes versus Active Managers. And what these studies have consistently shown is that in any single year, something like two-thirds of active managers are beaten by the index. And the problem is the one-third that win in one year aren't the same as the one-third that win in the next year. So that when you compound this over five years, over 10 years, over 20 years, it's more like over 90% of active managers underperform an index and have underperformed the index by about 100 basis points, by about one percentage point a year. So I'm not saying that it's impossible to outperform. Sure it is. But when you go and try to be active, when you try to find that Warren Buffett of the future, you're much more likely to be in the 90% part of the distribution rather than the 10% part of the distribution. And so I say the core of every portfolio ought to consist of a broad-based index fund. It's timely that we're talking about that, as you mentioned, Buffett, because he's got his big Omaha shindig this weekend that I know a lot of friends are going to. One of the things that you know, you touched on, and, and we talk about, you know, your book, Bogle, the indexing revolution has done more, particularly for American investors, uh, than just about any other concept. How much of it do you think of it? As I look at markets here in 2023, you know, the, the phrase index is always meant to me sort of market cap weighting, broad exposure, and how much of it is kind of what it enabled, meaning, the ability to offer strategies at low fees versus the one and a half or whatever the average fee was back then or more. I think the average mutual fund today, not dollar weighted because of because of Vanguard, but average median is still like 125. 
How much of it is the high fee, low fee versus the active versus index? Clearly, a big part of it is the expenses and difference in expenses. And in fact, the general difference between the typical broad-based index fund and the typical active manager, that difference is largely explained by the difference in funds. But there's something more to it. If, in fact, the market was so inefficient that active managers would be able to pick up things that, in fact, the rest of the market doesn't see, despite the difference in fees, you would expect active managers to do better. And the problem is, take away the fees, pre-fees. The typical active manager does not do better than a broad-based index, which, as you correctly pointed out, is capitalization weighted. Yeah, I get to thinking a little bit about, you know, Vanguard is a fun example because, you know, you spent many years there, so you know better better than I do. But I always like to, to poke some of my Boglehead friends and I say, you know, last time I checked, technically, Vanguard had a whole slug of active funds, right? Now, they were run very low cost and on and on, but you know, um, they're actually, quote, one of the largest active fund managers in the world. Now, that's anytime you put a T after your name and have trillions rather than just brilliant billions, you get, you have that scale and size. But, you know, part of it to me always comes back to this idea in the first place, which is such a massive idea of thinking about all your costs. So not just management fee or expense ratio, but also costs and transacting. So, you know, index is one of their brilliant innovations. They don't do anything. A lot of them, they do a little bit, they rebound, but it's not 50, 90% turnover usually, but thinking about costs and then the newer iteration, that being taxes being hugely important too. Well, look, let me just say on your point about Vanguard has plenty of active, uh, fee, uh, active funds. Remember that Vanguard started as an active manager. Vanguard, before the index fund started, Vanguard had a whole set of actively managed uh, funds. A lot of them had a kind of value bias, but typically the growth in, in the reason that Vanguard has that T before the number of uh, how much in assets do you have it's largely because of the growth of index funds. And so while they still definitely do have active funds, that was how they started. But their growth has largely been because of their ability to do index funds, both as mutual funds and as exchange traded funds. Yeah. So we start out with that as the basics, the foundation really for an allocation. Hey, you got these low cost rules-based exposures. What are some of the other changes now? You said there's been a lot of updates this year. What are some of the items we can dig in? One of the new things relative to the addition that happened just before, as markets changed and you went from essentially zero interest rates Throughout the yield curve, bonds actually, as I said, an addition before this, were a very risky thing. 
Whereas today, one of the differences is that for the first time in really a long time, you can get a reasonable rate of return from bonds. The other thing that I think is important of what's different today is a massive change has taken place in the inflation outlook. We went through, after really following Paul Volcker's slaying the inflation dragon, we went through a generation of falling inflation and inflation. The Federal Reserve was complaining, oh my God, we've got a 2% 2 target uh, for inflation and we can't seem we can't seem to get anywhere near it. We're in open market operations. Uh, uh, we're buying up securities. We've got a portfolio, a government bond portfolio that is growing all the time. We still can't get uh, inflation up to 2%. And today, interest rates now will actually give you uh, a yield and uh, give you a yield that is absolutely uh, much better than we have seen and that most people have seen throughout their investing history. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We, we like to talk to investors about regimes where the vast majority who are professionally managing money are caught off-footed, meaning, you know, most people who've been managing money currently have been doing it during the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, right? One very similar period of interest rate declining environment. All of a sudden, you've had this shift where interest rates have not only come up to normal levels, but you had this big inflation pop. Now, it looks like it's coming down, but it's still quite a bit higher than most people are used to, right? So it's an unfamiliar environment, and it's one of the reasons you had one of the worst years ever for 60-40 last year. That's the bad news. The good news is, like you mentioned, you now got 5% T-bill yield, so it's sort of reset in a way. So talk to me a little more. What else is different? We've had this uh, environment kind of shift. Inflation is back. You can get a decent bank account yield as long as you don't bank somewhere that gives you still one basis point. What else is in the new one? Well, uh, for example, there are new instruments, and one of them that I talk about in this edition, and this is wonderful for the individual investor, there is something called I-bonds from the uh, Treasury. And what the I-bond uh, does on the recent pricing of the I-bonds, you had a base rate of approximately 1%, and you add to that the inflation rate. They are basically the safest securities that you can buy and is the most perfect inflation hedge that you can imagine. So again, that would be an example of one of the things that is new. Now, the other thing that the new edition does is it talks about a lot of the things that are new that I have much more suspicion about. And let me give you an example of what the hottest thing now is in active management, and that is so-called ESG investing, that we will invest so that our holdings are environmentally sound, 
in companies that are uh, socially wonderful and that are governed perfectly. And uh, these are heavily marketed. I have uh, in the new edition a lot of the results very clear. And for the and first of all, when you look at what these funds hold, it's not at all clear that in fact they do what they say. There are services that rank countries, uh, rank companies, excuse me, in terms of ESG, and the ranking services are completely different. Give you an example. Uh, uh, in one rank, uh, Apple has the best governance in its industry. In another ranking, it has the worst in its industry. What do you do about a uh, utility? And here's another great example. A utility that is still burning some coal. Clearly, it burns coal, can't possibly be in an ESG portfolio. But again, you look at it, and it's the only utility that has promised by a date certain to be carbon neutral and who is investing more than any other utility in solar power, in wind power. So are they good because of what they're investing in or are they bad and can't be invested in because they still are burning a little coal? So when you look at it, it, it really isn't clear that these companies that are in these portfolios are ones that are going to make you feel good. What do these, what do these funds uh, buy? What are their big holdings? Their big holdings are uh, Facebook or Meta, as it's called now. Should I feel good about investing in uh, the social media stock? that a lot of people think has very deleterious effects on teenagers? Should I feel good because one of my big holdings is Visa that charges exorbitant interest rates to poor people? So when you kind of look at it, you find, hey, they may not be as pure as they should be. In fact, there's a lot of so-called greenwashing. You take a regular fund and you advertise it as being a socially wonderful uh, uh, fund. So it's not clear that they are actually doing what they say they do, and they have even higher expense ratios. And when you look at the results, they are doing a lot worse than a simple index fund. So you may neither do well, nor should you feel that, oh boy, I've been investing for the greater uh, good because you may neither get higher returns nor be investing in great companies. We have a tweet some point in the last year or two where I said something along the lines of, said how many investing products, or more specifically, I was talking about uh, VC-funded fintechs. I go, how many of these are just Vanguard with higher fees? Meaning, you know, like ESG is a good excuse to charge more, right? And I was laughing as you were talking this because I know somebody who runs a, it's an ETF called the ETF Orphans, meaning he's like targeting industries and areas that are outside of ESG, but um, he runs the um, holdings through ESG and it gave him a rating of A. So it just makes like the whole thing 
like you mentioned, doesn't really make a lot of sense. The one part I do sympathize with, which is the same you do, you know, my belief, it's not going to help your returns. If anything, it's probably going to hurt them to, as a quant, reduce your breadth or universe, right? Anytime you go from a thousand choices to a hundred, you have less chances, right? But I, I do sympathize with people that just say, look, hey, I realize that I just don't want to profit from whatever it may be, cigarettes, guns, whatever. And I say, look, you know, that's God bless you. That's your thing. Particularly the broad-based ESG ones. It's very messy, right? Like you mentioned, like you could have a utility that, yes, it does coal, but hey, it may be one of the biggest green energy research companies in the world. So, and then Meta, my God, we could spend a whole podcast talking about that. Um, and I don't know if history is going to judge that company kindly. And then, and then the one that I think that people overlook the most that a lot of companies, depending on your your criteria, would fail is, is the governance side, which we're, we've seen kind of over the years, a lot of governance failings that I think, um, you know, nothing like a bear market to come and uh, clean that out. But all right. So uh, what else is in the book? I, you know, listeners, you got to go buy the book anyway. It's well worth your money. I have a couple different editions, at least back on this bookcase. What else is on your mind in the book? What are you thinking about? Well, again, I've looked at uh, all the uh, new methods of uh, portfolio selection. And one of them that became very popular is something called risk parity. And the idea of uh, this is that safe assets often sell for higher prices or give lower yields than they should. And very risky assets often uh, are overpriced. I'd like to give the example because I've done some work on uh, racetrack betting. You know, I'm someone who believes the market is pretty damn good and pretty hard to beat. And in fact, if you look at a horse race, we've got the Kentucky Derby coming up. If you look at the ranking of the odds that are from the betting on the horse race, the odds actually do a reasonable job in uh, selecting uh, the winners. And in fact, the long shots generally finish at the back of the pack. And the favorites are generally in the front of the pack. But there's a systematic bias in that the long shots go off at much lower odds than they should, given their probability of winning. And the uh, favorites are also uh, quite uh, uh, mispriced. Just to give you an example, suppose you were at a track and you bought tickets on every horse in the race. You would have a winning ticket, but you would lose about 20% of your money each race because that's the track take for their profits, for taxes, uh, and for running the operation. But suppose you bought every tickets on every favorite. You don't lose 20%. You only lose 5%. 
because the favorites were mispriced. And if you bought every long shot, you don't lose 20%, you lose 40 or 50%. So this is the general idea that markets typically misprice things. And so what you ought to do is buy very safe securities and lever them up so that you increase their risk and rate of return. And that's the idea of risk parity. And uh, it worked for a long period of time. There are risk parity funds uh, out there. And like everything else, when something gets very popular, it no longer works. And boy, did it fail in recent years because people were holding very safe bonds on margin just when the Federal Reserve was increasing interest rates by 400, 450 basis points. And it was a disastrous strategy. So that's another example. And it continues to drive me back to believe that, you know, some of these ideas may be great. Some of them may work for a while. But look, in some sense, the simplest thing that you can do may be the best thing that you can do and certainly ought to be some part of your portfolio I say the core of your portfolio. You want to go out and speculate on individual stocks. It's fun. It's Listen, the stock market uh, is a lot of uh, fun. And at least relative to going to uh, Las Vegas and going to the casino where the odds are stacked against you, in general, if you believe in this country as I do and as Warren Buffett does, uh, this is an this is a way of benefiting from the growth of America, and this is another thing uh, that I'm very much aware of, and that's the history of markets. When the internet first started, we had internet companies sell for over a hundred times earnings. We had companies that put .dot com after their name that would double and then double again. Be very, very careful about these things. And since we're talking about things to be careful of, let's mention Bitcoin, which I have put a lot of information about in the new edition. This is something that I think you want to go and play with it, uh, uh, fine. But I don't think it belongs in a retirement portfolio. And I think it will lead a lot of people and has led a lot of people to disaster. Yeah. You know, man, there's a lot in there, Professor. Um, I was laughing because we went and saw another Professor Sharp uh, last year here in L.A. And I asked him, I said, you know, talking about the global market portfolio, you're talking about buying everything. So buying all the stocks in the world, all the bonds, splice in all the other publicly traded stuff. And I said, you know, does Bitcoin have a role in the global market portfolio? And he says, yes, but unfortunately, not a good one. <laughs> so I was loving it. I was laughing at his answer. But, um, you know, you've been a longtime proponent, I think, of, of, you know, broad diversification, low fees, kind of automating the main part of your portfolio, which is something we talk a lot about. One of the hard parts 
for individuals and advisors. You know, a lot of us professionals love to look down at those crazy little individuals. And I look at, you know, half of my friends that are advisors and institutions, and I see just as bad behavior. So it's everyone. You know, we've written a lot about globally diversified por- portfolios. And over the past decade, and some of them, it's the past 12 years, these portfolios on average have underperformed the S&P every year. And this is excluding 2022, but the 10 years prior, 10 years in a row, not 10 years overall, 10 years in a row of the S&P romping and stomping and just crushing you know, a diversified portfolio. And one of the challenges you see with people that's as old as time is, you know, starting to gravitate and chase performance, right? So the younger cohort, we saw a lot of this in the in the meme stocks of 2020. I was laughing when you were talking about a hundred times earnings because that was that was that was my bubble, right? The 2000 bubble because this last one in 2020 it's in was, the new edition, believe me, was was like a hundred times revenue. It wasn't a hundred times earnings; it's like a hundred times revenue. And so, what is the uh, advice you give to people on how to not get just seduced by whatever it is, one asset, one manager, and, and try to, and, and, and how to behave? Well, again, let me just say that uh, another new thing is I have an entire chapter on so-called behavioral finance, because I said that doing the right thing is actually quite easy. And that's what we've been talking about. But there are two things that you need to do in investing. You need to do the right thing, but you also have to be very careful not to do the wrong thing. And in terms of um, investment advisors, uh, you probably think this is self-serving, and it certainly is. But just as the index fund was a revolution in putting portfolios together, So the robo-advisor is a revolution in giving investment advice. And uh, I am the chief investment officer of one of the robo-advisors, although uh, we call ourselves an automated investment advisor. And this is a company called Wealthfront uh, uh, that's in uh, Palo Alto. And what we do is we have an overall expense to manage and balance the portfolio of 25 basis points. And what we also do, although we're clearly mainly just broad-based indexes, we do something that I believe is the only sure way of getting an alpha And that is to do tax loss harvesting. In other words, let's give you an example. Suppose that you wanted a portfolio, and I'll use the S&P 500, although in general, uh, I want a broader index than that, but just for the sake of uh, argument. Suppose instead of buying all 500 stocks, I had a computer program that chose 250 of those stocks. And it was selected so that the stocks mirrored the size distribution in the S&P 500. It mirrored the industry distribution. 
and was optimized to minimize the tracking error with the index. But I only hold 250 stocks. But then let's say that the stock market, maybe even a year when it went up, but auto stocks were down. Since I don't own all the auto stocks, maybe then I'll sell Ford that went down and buy General Motors that also went down. And I realized the loss from Ford. And let's say the drug stocks were down. Then say I'll sell Johnson & Johnson and buy Merck. And in a year like 2022, when, as you know, the market was down 20%, there were many opportunities to do this. And so instead of what happens with an actively managed fund, where, I mean, so many people have told me this, I don't understand what happened. My fund went down 20% this year, and I got a 1099 at the end of the year, and it said, you realize these short-term capital gains and long-term capital gains, and you've got a tax liability. How could I have a tax liability when I lost money? Well, because there was trading and people realized some capital gains and you get your share of it at the end of the year. So instead of that 1099 giving you a tax liability, this gives you a tax loss that you can use to offset other gains and that up to $3,000 can be deducted from your income taxes. This has always been available for wealthy investors. There are uh, companies like uh, uh, Aperio, uh, which do the tax loss harvesting. But Wealthfront, since it's automated, is able to do this even if you've got a portfolio that's only $100,000. So again, this is one of the things that is so important is the only sure way I know of getting an alpha. You don't get pre-tax outperformance, but you get after-tax outperformance. And it works well. And uh, having an automated service that can search for these things every day uh, is a very effective thing to do. Yeah, I mean, taxes, you know, fees are obvious because people can see them. Taxes, you know, to me, I feel like investors often overlook, they moan about them come April. We were talking a lot last year saying, man, there's going to be some monster capital gains distributions. I'm like, talk about a double just uh, slap to the face. Not only is your fund down 20, 20, 30%, by the way, some of these had like 10, 20% capital gains distributions. And it's just the good news, I think, if you look at the flows chart over the years, it's like a big alligator jaws, right? It's going towards lower fee funds. And that's a trend that's just a one-way street. So that's great. And a lot of these bad behavior, the old sort of Wall Street of decades past of conflict of interest, I think they're eventually dying. I hope they're dying out. But you don't go back to those funds, or at least I hope not, listeners. <laughs> if you had a 20% capital gains distribution on, on these inefficient mutual funds. So I love the automated services. I've been a huge proponent. But A, the automated side. B, the systematic. It kind of whirs in the background. But, but in today's environment, it's really interesting because of the cash 
accounts as well. So often they'll have a side savings account. And as opposed to it being a Bank of America and getting one basis point, you're getting four, four and a half, five percent FDI insured. And so to me, that's actually a big reason to be considering the automated. Wealthfront just announced 4.55% in the cash account that they offer. Well, I think once people automate things, and again, I'm a quant, so they think about it in a different bucket. You know, people think about their savings in a different bucket than they do in their investments. But but the people that do either automated or the target date funds style, where it just gets clipped off your paycheck, it goes in there. I think they behave a lot better in general. A couple other topics I wanted to, to hit on. Another part of the challenge of the past decade is particularly my younger friends, but a lot of people uh, as investors the U.S. has stomped everything, not just commodities, real estate, gold, bonds, on and on, but particularly foreign stocks. And historically, foreign stocks in the U.S. have been kind of a, a coin flip in any given year. And there's periods where one does better than the other. You know, you've talked about valuations before. I know you talk about CAPE ratio and others. How should investors be thinking about that today? We look at kind of percentage of portfolios that investors in the US have, and it's darn near 80, 90% usually in the US, which is nowhere even close to the market cap weighting. What do you say to people? Well, I do uh, think that uh, today in particular, I worry that most portfolios are underweighted with uh, foreign stocks. Uh, one, uh, as you say, most people are 90 to 100% uh, uh, in the U.S., and the valuations are quite different. The CAPE ratio is the so-called cyclically adjusted price earnings multiple. You don't take any one year, but you sort of average the earnings to get what uh, the old Graham and Dodd used to call the earning power of the corporation. And these CAPE ratios in the U.S. today are actually quite high. and the CAPE ratio does a reasonable job, not of predicting short-run returns. Nobody can predict short-run returns. But returns over the next decade have had a pretty good correlation with this so-called CAPE ratio. When CAPE ratios, cyclically adjusted price-earnings ratios, are high, the 10-year rates of return tend to be lower than average. And when CAPE ratios are low, the 10-year rates of return have tended to be somewhat higher than average. Today, CAPE ratios in the United States are well above average, and CAPE ratios in Europe and Japan tend to be below average, and CAPE ratios in emerging markets also are below average. So on a valuation basis also, what I say to people is look at your international diversification. Uh, and if you are 80, 90, 95% US, think about adding some international diversification. I think you're likely to uh, both increase return and reduce risk by doing so. Yeah, I catch a lot of flack, been tweeting about it, particularly some of these uh 
foreign exposures, emerging markets, and you see the sentiment responses from people, particularly on the emerging side. But I was joking because Vanguard just recently put out their economic forecasts, and they said of all the asset classes, the number one expected return over the next decade was foreign stocks. So I say, you go, go give them a hard time. You guys quit bugging me on on Twitter. Two more questions for you, and then we'll uh, we'll let you out into the Princeton in the evening. What do you believe? I have a long list on Twitter for this. What do you believe the vast majority of your peers, so like 75%. So if you go to a cocktail party with a bunch of friends in the investing world, what do you believe that the vast majority of your peers don't believe? So a kind of a non-consensus view that uh, if you got into an argument with all your buddies, most most would take the other side. Well, I think uh, uh, most people really believe that they are uh, excellent stock pickers. Uh, and uh, I think the evidence is very clear that they are uh, wrong, that there are no uh, excellent uh, stock pickers. And I think that uh, the other thing that they believe, if they have bought something uh, that did well, if they will tell you, I knew that Microsoft was going to be Microsoft, I bought it, I held on. But the idea that most people think that if there have been successes, that they came from genius uh, and forget that, in fact, I always say, as opposed to being lucky or smart, uh, I'll choose being lucky all the time. What has been your most memorable investment? It doesn't have to be good. It can be bad. It could be your first stock. It could be the most recent one. It doesn't even have to be a stock. But uh, as you think back on it, is there anything come to mind? When the first index fund came into being, I uh, did what I've always recommended that people do of dollar cost averaging of just putting a small amount of money into that uh, every period. And, um, you know, I had done it with, uh, you know, when I started out, I didn't really have much in resources, but I was able to put $100 a month aside. The calculation started in 1978 because that was when the first index fund was available. $100 a month, keeping on putting it in, whether the market's up or down, whether you're scared or not, that was worth today almost a million and a half dollars. And the fact that it really is so easy and that even people with limited resources, as I've done, of actually getting a big retirement fund, uh, even starting off with very, very little, by forcing themselves to save. And it's very hard to do. I mean, you know, in some sense, I'm saying this is so easy. It's so simple to be a good investor. It's not simple to save. I understand that. But if you did it, the potential results 
and actual results are just amazing. And that $100 a month, starting off when the first index fund was available, is worth almost a million and a half dollars today. And if you did this with a salary reduction from your employer and your employer matched it, then we're talking about almost $3 million. And so few people are facing retirement with enough money to have them have a comfortable retirement that I say, this was the most striking investment in my life and it can be for everybody else. You know, so, okay, let's say President Biden or one of his uh, people listens to this podcast and say, all right, Burden, we hear you. We're going to drive you down from Princeton. Tell us, what can we implement, whether it's financial education, whether it's some sort of improvements to the retirement system? What's like a one or two things we could be doing to uh, really take advantage of this very simple concept in math you're talking about, which is investing for the long-term disciplined and low-cost investments pays out enormous compounded results and dividends. What can we be doing? Well, let me, that's a wonderful question. And let me give you my answer. And my answer is the following. You know, a lot of people think what you ought to do is privatize social security. Uh, and, uh, because of a lot of the things that you and I have talked about, uh, I worry about that. I think that's uh, potentially just enormously risky. But what if we did the following? We said, look, we've now got a, uh, a little over 6% payroll tax that you pay on your salary. What if we said, let's increase that tax by 1%. But the 1% is not going to go to the government. It's going to go for a private plan that you will have in addition to Social Security. And that's what I would like to see President Biden do. Uh, and uh, that's one of the things. It's a forced saving plan because I know darn well how hard it is to save this is the thing I would really like to do. And I think uh, 20, 30, 40 years from now, a lot of people in this country would be much better off uh, and can look forward to a much happier and fulfilling retirement. You know, we talk about um, Australia and their retirement system, and they have a pretty large for saving. But the funny thing is, if you talk to anyone from Australia, they love it. Like I, I've not talked to a single person from Australia who does not love their situation because you fast forward 10, 20, 30 years, and all of a sudden you have this entire base of people who have large retirement savings. And it's funny because you look at some of these ideas and they're so obvious and so simple and basic. You're always wondering how the politicians don't implement them. So <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get Biden to get you on the phone and hopefully we can uh, get this sorted out. Burton, this has been a blast, Professor. Uh, I've really um, been blessed to talk with you today. Well, I've enjoyed it very, very, very much. And I uh, really appreciate uh, uh, you taking the time. 
Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, check out the link in the show notes for our episode last year with another investing legend, Dr. Eugene Fama. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.